National Writers' Conference is an annual gathering of writers and the writing industry organised by Writing West Midlands. It is hosted by the University of Birmingham and supported by the Authors, Licensing and Collection Society, as well as by many individuals and organisations. My name is Jonathan Davidson. With my colleagues at Writing West Midlands, I programme the 2022 National Writers' Conference. Working with Birmingham Podcast Studio, we have produced this podcast to share some of the conference. I'll now hand over to Blake from Birmingham Podcast Studio, but I'll be popping up now and then to give you more information. Our first conference speaker, incidentally, is the publisher and novelist Cassie Malley, with some fascinating things to say about representation. Hello and welcome to Writing West Midlands National Writers' Conference 2022. I'm Blake Woodham. We're here on a beautiful sunny day in the University of Birmingham. We've got an action-packed schedule today, so let's get started. Thank you for having me. This is incredible. It's a massive honour. Um, today I'm here to talk about representation, of who it is for, who gets to represent who, and whose definition are we using. These are huge questions, and I'm not entirely sure I have the complete answers for them, but maybe that's kind of the point. As someone who has worked in publishing for the last six years, I recognize that there is a world of difference between diversity and representation. Diversity is an editor reissuing a book by a deceased black author so that they can say they published a black author that year. Representation is an editor going out of their way to find a non-white author, pay them the right level of money, and publish them as well as they publish their white authors. But I'm not here to discuss the way the publishing industry fails in their publishing of non-white authors and books. I'm here to discuss representation the way that I understand it and what I perceive to be its current limitations. As a child growing up in Alam Rock, which is about 10 minutes east of the city centre in Birmingham, I was surrounded by Pakistani Muslims. The community made famous by the very long road that runs through the middle of it that gives us Alam Rock as our name was made up of Pakistani Muslims who had all emigrated from the same place in Pakistan. We all knew each other, we were related to one another, either through family or marriage, and I never felt a single moment of lack when I was growing up because of this. We watched Bollywood films and Pakistani dramas, listened to Indian music, to Gawali. Whenever I walked out of my house, I saw people who looked exactly like me. We went to the same mosques, we ate the same food, we talked the same way. Most of the people in my community knew me because of my parents. I never felt any kind of difference when I was younger. It was only when I got to university when I found myself on a course filled with white people and white lecturers, that I began to understand that there was something a little different about me. It didn't take me long to realize that I wasn't white and that white was the default. I didn't have the language for it when I was 18, but I understand now that I felt invisible. When we discussed classics that everyone else seemed to have read, but I never had access to when I was younger, from dead white people that everyone else seemed to know and love already, explored philosophers from countries that my peers seemed to know intimately, I began to feel incredibly small and inconsequential. It took me a while to understand that what I was feeling was a gap, a gap between who I was and who the course had been created for. I began to search for the space in which I could fit. I found a module on my degree that housed books by non-white people. It was the American module, and the books were written by former slaves about the slave trade. As I grew more comfortable with myself, I asked my lecturers why we couldn't explore more authors. I asked why we couldn't discuss Toni Morrison or James Baldwin, who I hadn't read yet, but who I understood were important. I asked why we couldn't add Katsuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, why we couldn't look further to find the books that spoke to a variety of life, rather than just doing what we had done before for many decades. I was met with the blank stares of people who didn't even want to consider that maybe I had a point. 
Aside from the books I read in the American class, I didn't come across another non-white book during my three years until I took a course titled On Blasphemy. The lecturer had already grouped us, randomly grouping us together. Um, each group would take a book and prepare a presentation on it to present back to the class each week. He had already done the work of taking these titles and placing them into a hat, which he then offered to us so that we could pick a title out. I was the first person to pick out a title. I picked out a book called The Satanic Verses. His face went pale, and he whispered that I could pick again if I wanted to. I whispered back that I was okay. I knew the book, of course. I'd already been told that under no circumstances was I to read this book, because it was a bad book about Muslims. But now I had a great excuse to read it, so I started. I remember reading the book in a weekend. I was swallowed whole by it. The parts of the book that were about the immigrant experience spoke deeply to me. I could see my family in Salman Rushdie's descriptions of how the characters looked, where they had come from, what they were going through when they landed in this country. The writing sang to me. The irony of me finding a version of myself represented in the book that I had been told by my family for years that I wasn't allowed to read is not lost on me. As a child of Pakistani immigrants, that book spoke right to me. It wasn't specifically my life that I was seeing reflected back at me, but something off me. A fragment of me staring right back as I read. As a Muslim, the book angered me about the claims it made about Islam. But even there in that anger was the feeling of being seen, just not in the way that I liked. I chased this feeling. I read Zadie Smith's White Teeth and loved reading about Samad, a Bangladeshi man who was much older than I am, born in a completely different generation, had a vastly different life to the one that I have. I read Mohsin Hamid's Moth Smoke and was enthralled by the darkly glittering Pakistan he brought to life, one that was very, very different to the Pakistan I had visited with my father when I was younger. I went further afield, collected more authors who were writing the kind of fiction that gave me permission to exist. I found non-white authors that were writing the stories that spoke to me, even if on paper there was nothing about them or their characters that represented me. They filled the gap that university had opened in me. This was representation, before I even had the word for it. That feeling of seeing myself on the page began to resonate within my writing, which I had started to take very seriously when I was at university. After writing two books that didn't quite work, too big, too messy, too long, too complicated, too chaotic, I wrote Good Intentions, which would go on to be published. It tells the story of Noor, a young Pakistani Muslim boy who falls in love with Yasmina, a young black Muslim girl, and of the tensions that arise when Noor doesn't introduce Yasmina to his family because he fears that they won't accept her because of their feelings towards black people. I wrote this book because I wanted to write about Muslims as I saw them, South Asian people as I knew them, and to open a conversation about anti-blackness in the South Asian community, something that is rarely explored despite its prevalence. I never intended to write this book as the single story of Muslims, of South Asians, of Pakistani people, of relationships between black and brown people. I wrote a story that was important to me because I had hoped it would do for others what all those books had done for me. I hoped that it would become a fragment of somebody, a sliver of themselves. In the months since the book has been published, I've had readers engage with it and share their thoughts with me. There are the positive ones that I get tagged on Twitter that I hold deep within myself anytime I feel doubt eats away as I edit my second book. And then there are the critiques, some of which I take on and others that I completely ignore because I don't agree with them. One critique that I have seen is that Muslims are telling me that they are sorely disappointed with the representation of them in the book. The Muslims in the book are not good enough Muslims. My Muslim characters do not pray five times a day. The female Muslim characters do not wear scarves. There is a gay Muslim character. Some of them smoke weed. Some of them have sex. Crucially, they all identify as being Muslim. And more than that, are not portrayed as people running away from their religion, as we have so often seen portrayed in popular culture. But I have had people tell me that it is disappointing to see Muslims behaving in this way. I'm not like them, seems to be the common critique. 
But I didn't write this book so someone out there could read it and say, this is it. This encapsulates the entirety of who I am. I wrote this book so that they could experience what I had with all those books that I'd read, that it might just sing true to a sliver of who they are. I thought that's what representation was. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe representation is to portray people of a very specific kind in the broadest possible strokes so that everyone in that group can identify with them. I don't believe that my book is representative of the British Pakistani population. I don't even think it's representative of me as the author. This, for me, is one of the limitations of the current conversation around representation. It is a simplification that removes all nuance and depth. It flattens the conversation into a single line, which is whether or not the reader feels wholly represented by what is being portrayed on the page. If not, then it is a failure of representation. But by doing this, we are removing the space in which writers can thrive, and we are doing ourselves as readers a disservice by demanding that a certain kind of writer must write in a way that everyone can see themselves in. It is an impossible bar to hold against writers, and it is important to know that it is being held against writers for whom representation is incredibly important. The writers who have been barred from this industry in the past who have been exploited and ignored. I'm here with keynote speaker, Kasim Ali. Straight off the stage, hello, and how did you think that went? Hey, 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 thank you for having me. Um, I thought it went pretty well. I had a couple of people come up to me afterwards and say that it, it did well, so that's always good, right? <laughs> And it was your first first keynote event? Yes. Um, I, never, I never thought that I would do a keynote speech. Um, so this is my first one, and it was great. I, I had a lot of fun. And um, how does it feel to be doing it in Birmingham then? Oh, it feels great. So I, I, I was born here. I was born in Birmingham. And actually, I was telling um, the guy from the University of Birmingham that I tried to get in when I was 17, and they wanted three A's for an English degree, and I wasn't smart enough. So I left. Um, so it feels really like a rite of passage almost to come back to this university in particular to do a keynote speech about the book. It's just great. So what do you think of the benefits of events like today? Well, I, so I live in London now um, because I work in publishing and publishing is so London-centric. I think an event like this really shows that there are writers from all over the place. I think when I speak to my American colleagues and they talk about the books they're reading, they're all set in London by London writers from the UK. And I just kind of think that's a real shame. Like There are all these places that are, that are incredible and have such incredible people. So I love places like this and spaces like this because it shows or reminds me that like... I may have left Birmingham, but actually there is such a well of creativity here. Um, I love seeing people just engage with that. And Kasim, in your keynote speech, you talked about sort of false starts and the, the journey to becoming a published writer and having the, the, the books that sort of didn't make it, the ones that maybe were too complicated. Or Any particular pieces of advice, anything that you, you, that you would like to say to, to someone who maybe is at the start of the journey? Yeah, I would say embrace rejection, which feels, which feels insane. I know it feels insane, but, and it took me a long time to realize this. Uh, if you're getting rejected for something, it means you tried. And I think a lot of writers, or at least a lot of writers that I talk to now are like, they're panicked. Am I writing the right thing? Am I writing something that's trendy? Am I writing something that people are going to like? And to all of that, I just sort of say, just write the thing that you want to write. And I know that sounds really simple, but if you're chasing something or if you're running after something, it's just never going to really work. Um, you know, those two books that I was talking about in the keynote speech, I don't regret them. You know, they may have taken me like a real long time to write and they may have been rejected by all those people, but they taught me how to be a better writer and it led to this book. And this book has taught me how to be a better writer, which will lead to the next book. And we're constantly learning. So embrace rejection, finish the book, send it out. Don't collect your rejection emails. I know that a lot of writers say you should plaster your wall with them. I delete mine um, unless they have something that I can learn from. So delete the emails, move on and just keep, literally just keep going because I think... 
it is so hard, but just embrace rejection and keep going. Kasim Ali, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Blake, and thank you, Kasim. Our next presentation focused on writing for TV and film. We joined TV producer Carol Harding, along with David Chiqui of Free Tables Productions, Hayley McKenzie of Script Angel, and the screenplay writer Annabelle Breitling, in discussion with Liv Chapman from Writing West Midlands, chairing proceedings. I think you need to find means of support. And the thing I, the biggest advice I can give you is I'd say, your work is very precious. I would never, ever send it unsolicited to anyone. And that's what I feel really strongly about. I think that it's really um, discouraging if you send it out into the middle of nowhere and no one responds. I actually think you need to do a lot of research. It's really hard work to get your work to the right place, which is why I'm saying places like Script Angels. I think as a producer, I, when I started out, I read everything. I read every single script and tried to reply sensibly to every single one. It doesn't mean I, I still read, but because of the demands of the things I get to read now that are easier for me to get made or for me to produce or to sell on to other people, I think that um, I would say to people, please don't send your scripts unsolicited to anyone because you need to have some connection with them and you need to build those relationships over time. And so I would work on that. And once I've built, once I've built re- re- relationships with people, I'll read everything they send me. Okay. So I'll follow up there and just say, what, how do they do that? Tangibly, how does a writer in this room get to the stage where they have a relationship with a producer or with a production company where they feel that they can um, send something or they're working on something together? And, and by all means, that question's for you, Carol, but for, for any of you who've had that experience. One of the things I used to do a lot, and I still do a little bit, was I was connected to various writers' groups. And as a producer, don't forget, I'm hungry for material. And in the BBC, where I, I was trained, um, there, are, there are writers' groups where people will read your work or you will do readings of your work in any form. And I think people like me go to those groups. I sit in the background and don't say very much, but I'm always listening for, for work. And so I think that that's why these, these companies are brilliant because they were, and obviously they get the first pick of the cherry anyway, because if you're doing all that work, you're doing it for a reason. You're actually doing it for a reason. I'm actually an independent producer, not a production company. Of course I have a production company, which is why I'd never say what my company is, because I have no resources or people behind me. I read everything myself. If I'm working on a development, I edit it myself. I finance it myself. So I think you have to build those relationships. Every time there's an event, people are really hungry for material. Okay. David, maybe next. But So in terms of your production company and kind of how you get that material through, mm-hmm. how, how would someone make that link with you? Um, as has been said previously, there's a, a more kind of writers out there than there are producers. Um, I've been a reader before. Um, I've read for um, um, Channel 4 um, for their coming up strand. I remember reading about 400 scripts in one month um, and finding Jack Thorne, uh, which was kind of a great experience. But you realize that there's a huge quantity of material and you have to have kind of filters. So one of the first filters um, from a producer's point of view is, does someone have representation? Do they have an agent? Have they written before? Are they working in theatre? Are they working in radio? Mm. So you're always trying to make sure that you are in the strongest position with that writer to be able to progress. 
because you have a limited amount of resources in terms of the projects that you you can invest in, and you also have to be thinking about could I sell that right in that project to a channel? So is it for you then, by the time it gets to you, are you expecting to see some form of a track record from a writer? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but you can, I think, I think one of the big things for me if you're starting out is very much you should be reading. I think it's really important you should be watching both film and TV and theatre. Um, my biggest education as a writer has been reading other people's scripts, okay. both good ones and bad ones. Hayley, what's your experience of this? So it is one of the reasons I set up Script Angel um, was because there is this really big gap between uh, writing a spec script and becoming a professional writer. So sorry, specs. So just spec just means you've written it speculatively. You haven't been commissioned. No one has asked you or paid you to write that. Um, uh, the, and most people think that once you've written a spec script, you can just send it to producers and hopefully they'll pick it up. But unfortunately... Um, because of the volume, as you described, um, most production companies have a no unsolicited submissions. That means if it doesn't come through an agent, they won't look at it. And that's just because of numbers. So BBC Writers Room, which doesn't have that, which is open to anybody sending any script, they have a submission window every year. It's completely open. There are no eligibility requirements apart from being UK-based. Um, they receive about 5,000 scripts every call. Um, so the volume, as you can see, is really kind of substantial. So what the industry is generally looking for, we're looking for you to have got some traction somehow with the scripts you've already written. That might be you've put it in for a script competition, um, like Studio 21 or BAFTA Rockcliffe, or you've been selected by BBC Writers Room, because when BBC Writers Room do an open call, they then filter and filter. They're looking for exciting new writers, and they will publicise their top 20. So, so the industry looks to them to say, actually, who are the new writers who are coming through? Because an agent will also be looking for you to have some traction already, for you to have done something with your script, for it to have got through some selection process. And one way, just off the top of my head, is obviously you can, as a writer, build relationships at different levels of the industry. Yeah, so you might kind of have kind of difficulty getting to Piers Wenger or Anne Mensa, you know, who kind of run departments at channels and broadcasters, but you might be able to kind of get to a script editor. So if you're a fan of Hollyoaks or EastEnders or kind of one of those continuing series you could reach out to a script editor in terms of you looked at the credits at the end of the show, you've seen who's edited that episode, you could probably get that email quite easily. Well, this and is kind of on social like, media, they're actually usually quite easy to find, no, aren't abs- they? Absolutely. So I know lots of like development editors mm. who are coming up who I, who've been a script reader before, who've kind of become a, an assistant script editor, then gone into script editing and then gone into development producing. So they, as a development board who becomes a producer, you're always looking to build your relationships with writers. Mm. So you'd be interested in kind of developing relationships earlier on in your trajectory. So as a writer, you can be entrepreneurial in that sense. Yeah, I think that um, I produced continuing dramas for many years. And I think that um, it is, it's not good enough just to look at the credits and to send it. You need to write a personal letter about something in a storyline that's moved you, you've hated, you've loved, you've whatever... And you have to give it context as well as attaching your script. And if you can show that you love this show and you know it and you know the characters and you might even suggest in a three-line pitch something that you think that character could do and then say, by the way, and this is a sample of my work, then they're going to read it with enthusiasm. I've known Doctors since it started and I've produced it on and off for many years at Casualty, Holby, the afternoon plays. And that's how you select new people coming in. 
And even if you can introduce something very different in character or voice, that's it. They're, all, they're, they're hungry for material and they're hungry for writers. But that preparation work is key, isn't oh, it? It's that, that time yeah, it's, spent yeah. doing the research, writing the emails, thinking carefully about exactly. how you're phrasing it and what you're actually yeah. responding to. That's, that's really important. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask you if there's anything that you would do differently if you had your time again. I'm going to pick on you, Annabelle, if you can think of anything <laughs> that you would, now that you know more and you're more kind of aware of the industry, if there's anything that you'd want to approach differently or that you'd kind of do in a different order or something like that. Um, I'd say possibly for me personally, it's just kind of just finding a networking style that works uh, for you. I, I know they kind of talk a lot about um, kind of in-person kind of networking, but I always find that stuff quite nerve-wracking personally. Um, so when uh, lockdown happened and it all moved to online, I weirdly kind of flourished better and got more jobs off the back and more opportunities mm-hmm. off the back of doing it that way than kind of just, yeah, just kind of someone and kind of sticking your hand out. And, yeah. Hayley, how about you? Um, so I think the thing that kind of got me through in the early years was was an absolute obsession. So mm-hmm. the craft, I just I watched yeah. everything and I read scripts. Um, but the thing that I was really not good at um, was asking for favours um, or stepping yeah. into spaces. Mm-hmm. I kind of assumed that because I was quite good at what I was doing, everything else would follow from that. That's not true. <laughs> you have to ask. And it took me a really, really long time you have to create opportunities for yourself. Yeah. You have to put yourself out there. Yeah. You have to do the networking. And like, so you, you find a way that works for you, you know, yeah. don't step into spaces that make you uncomfortable, but you absolutely have to put the work out there. I was just going to follow up and say, one of the reasons I didn't say mine, I wasn't confident enough. Yeah. That was the reason really, is that you really have to self-believe. Yeah. And we all suffer that, I think, that insecurity. Mm-hmm. It took me years to get to the point where I was confident enough in my ability to actually pitch a story at someone. And I can do it verbally now. Like if I've been working on it for so long, I can just do it. And I think it's because I've got a body of work behind me. Mm-hmm. But I would say when you're starting out, believe in yourself. There's something there, isn't there, about um, even before you potentially have an agent or approach an yeah, agent, definitely. about being your own advocate. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And it's almost like it's two, it's two people, isn't it? There's, yeah. there's you, the writer, and then there's you, the advocate, who has to kind of champion yourself, which... Yeah. Admittedly, everyone finds that hard, certainly at first. If you find it difficult to champion yourself, I think you should champion your idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. You should be passionate about yeah, the material. That's, that's the motivation, the energy that means that makes you put yourself out there. And actually, the more that you talk to people about what you're doing at events like this, the easier it becomes to then talk to a stranger about it. It, it genuinely does help. Mm-hmm. And also, there's that script, if you're passionate about it, even if there's nothing like it on TV and you think no one would touch it, it's a great calling card because it tells everybody who you are as a writer and what you care about. Mm-hmm. And it's your voice. So you should still write it. I'm here with one of the speakers, uh, David Chikwa. Hello. Hey, nice to meet you. Did I pronounce that right? Um, Chukwa, Chukwi, it's fine, don't worry. I've, I've had a, billi- a million versions. So, uh, David, is this your first time at writing West Midlands? No, second year. Um, I kind of moved from London to Birmingham last year and um, kind of wanted to network in terms of like the local industry and reached out to Jonathan. And um, one of the writers that he was interviewing last year, Kit DeWall, was on stage and I was interested in uh, working with her, having read a brilliant um, script of hers and her brother's. Um, so that was my first experience. So in terms of the whole writing scene uh, here in Birmingham, different to London? I mean, it, 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 it feels like a cliche to say that it's London-centric, but do you find it's true? Has it been a surprise to you moving here? 
Um, it's definitely a different scene. There's definitely a different energy. I mean, there's no way in uh, in pretending that London, as we know, is kind of a little bit of an anomaly, and it does kind of suck in kind of talent. I left. I, I grew up in Birmingham, uh, so I'm, I'm at Brummie originally. Um, and as soon as I finished um, at Canterbury doing a film degree, I moved to London because I knew that's where I needed to be for the industry. Um, you know, you've got more theatres, you've got all the agents, you've got the production companies, you've got the main, major studios, you've got the HQs of most of the broadcasters. What's exciting at the moment is is beginning to change. So, for example, Channel 4 have relocated um, to the north recently and there's lots of pressure with, on, on BBC in terms of being a national public broadcaster to be based more regionally. I think... I feel sometimes frustrated that Birmingham slightly missed out. You have the kind of centres in like Cardiff and Bristol um, and Manchester, and sometimes I feel like the West Midlands is slightly forgotten because it's kind of in the middle of the country. Um, but I do feel that's changing, and I think what um, the festival is doing uh, is, is kind of part of that change. So what do you think are the, the kind of benefits of events like this? Um, I think it's what I like about this kind of festival is that it's very small and it's very intimate. So it's like a genuine chance to actually sit down and kind of grab people's time and have a conversation with people kind of one on one. It's going to be more difficult to do that at a big, um, at, a, at one of the bigger, like you know, or Hay, um, those big festivals. So for me, it's a very kind of uh, laid back and relaxed setting where you can kind of just have informal conversations with professionals. Fantastic. And finally, this is a question that I'm asking everyone I'm speaking to today, but one piece of advice for an aspiring writer a lot of aspiring writers here today one piece of advice that you give them oh god um i'm a writer myself so i mean i have been commissioned um for uh, cbbc and nickelodeon for children's tv and scripted um i wrote my first script when i was 19 um and burnt it (laughs) i wrote a second script also when i was 19 and that also when got burned will never ever be, be seen again um and then it took me maybe 15 years before I wrote again um, and then that script was actually half decent and I, it got an agent potentially interested but I still didn't think I was ready and then I got made redundant and used my redundancy money to fund myself to write a, a, a spec that I could be proud of and that I was prepared to kind of send into the world so I think the biggest piece of advice is just to don't give up and just be be relentless and it can take time and that's okay in terms of going out and living life and then actually kind of being broken and have, you know, having your heart broken kind of getting into trouble and then actually having something to say and some experience that can sit behind your words so um yeah i think i'm not sure if there's any advice in that but that's that's my rambling musings don't get it right get it written (laughs) exactly exactly thank you very much david cool thank you so much so here we are a backstage if you like at the national writers conference i'm here with some attendees hello hello Uh, what's your name emily and uh, why are you here today emily so I am a poet, a full-time freelancer, and I've been hoping to make the conference for a few few years, and this is the first time I have. Um, I want to meet different people in the industry. I want to learn. There's a few particular talks that I'm really excited about. Um, and just to meet people who are in the same world, but who are not just poets is always nice as well. Um, however, of course, I have managed to find immediately the other poets in the room. <laughs> poets flock together. Hello, and um, why are you here today? Um, I came here to be with other writers and those people that work with writers to kind of see behind the curtain, the mechanisms that go on to publishing writers, getting their writing out there, but also to be inspired. 
What do you think the, the main benefits of meeting other writers are? Obviously, people have said writing is a very lonely experience. I think there are multiple benefits of being with other people. Um, the conversations that you have, you have sort of these thoughts that go on in your head and sometimes you think you might be the only one that thinks that and then you get with other people and you find out that many, many other people are thinking that as well. And also just talking with other people, you know, you feel less alone when you're in that room alone, knowing that other people are out there doing that. It's kind of like breastfeeding at three o'clock in the morning. You know there are other breastfeeding moms out there doing it. You feel less alone. A poet speaks. Thank you. Having heard what two conference attendees are getting from the day, we now switch to a session on marketing yourself as a writer. Our speakers are writers Ben Davis, Lena Normington and Abdul Khan, chaired again by Liv Chapman. This is followed by Blake talking to Lena. We're going to talk mainly about social media because actually as a writer, that is the area where you can have the most control and if you want to, it's the area that you can have the most personality through it. Um, if you're just starting out, if you're terrified by social media, if you feel like you don't want to have anything to do with it and it's all too scary... Where would you start? Where would you recommend you start? I'm going to go with you, Ben, first. Um, I would say go on... I know Twitter has a bad rep. I would say go on Twitter and seek out... There's lots of book accounts on there. People, just people are into books. All, all authors are on there. Just follow authors that you like and see what they do. See how they... Everyone's different, you know. Other people, some authors are just on there just for just to promo purposes. I've got this book out now. Others are more sort of chatty. It very much depends. But just see all the different approaches and see what works, I think, would be better. That's what I did when I sort of first started out because I didn't know what I was doing. Lena, what would you recommend you start out at? Um, I would actually say Instagram just because I find the least amount of weirdos are there <laughs> and uh, there's the uh, smallest chance of going viral because the algorithm is awful, which is actually good if you're starting out because yeah. it means that you're not going to randomly uh, upload something to YouTube or tweet something and then get loads and loads of people because... Um, that can sometimes sometimes happen. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like a softer way. And also I think it's quite, it's quite nice once you follow like one or two people on Instagram, it automatically suggests more people to follow, usually who have similar size accounts to you. And that's quite nice. It's got a really good way of you being able to build who you're following and find like-minded people. Because mm-hmm. Abda, what about you? What do you think? Um, I'd say like um, if, you, if you're going to post on social media, once you, once you know what you're doing... I'd, I wouldn't post the same thing on every single platform because all the platforms are different. So LinkedIn is more businessy, so I tend to do something a bit more serious on LinkedIn, even if it's related to my writing, but I might focus on, um, you know, sort of a survey or, you know, research or something like that. Um, Twitter's just, just fast. You can post as much as you like on Twitter. It, it just turns around so quickly. Again, make the posts slightly different. I think each platform is, has got a different type of um, market. Hmm. So this is where we're going to talk about, um, I hate the term authenticity, but actually that is the word that I mean in, in, in this instance. Because Abda and Lena, both of you use social media, and I'm sure you don't tell everything, but you, you have an element of your own personalities that comes through. Lena in particular, your YouTube channel, they're quite long videos, you, you have a sense of humour, you're, you know, you're warm, you've got little observations. How did that feel? Did that come easily? Yeah, so I've been doing YouTube since I was like 19, <laughs> and I'm now 32, so it, it does feel like just a normal part of my, my life. But I think also it's when you 
you've got to do it for a long time and you've got to like meet the individuals that are in that big mob of crowd so over the years I've met quite a lot of the people that follow me and I know that they're quite normal people and in fact I've followed a lot of them back and I can see their lives as well I think a lot of the time people forget that you can follow people back Mm. and they don't have to be somebody famous or somebody particularly interesting like I follow a lot of people that follow me just because I'm quite nosy (laughs) and that's okay because their their profiles are public as well so I think like really like like remembering that you're talking to people and you're not talking to like one mob audience with one pair of eyes makes it a lot more normal and I think there's a lot of people that haven't grown up with it at all and I think that it's still something that can come quite naturally to you because you meet people in your everyday life there's people that I've had conversations with it like just standing around in the hall it's just like that but it's just digital I think some people like make it out like it's something really really complicated I'm like if you're a human you like communicating with people it'll be fine (laughs) and also you can choose what to say you can choose what to say you can choose what to hold back everyone's like you can't delete anything that's been on the internet but if you're not really a big deal you can delete it and nobody will ever remember (laughs) like it's one of those things that I think there's a lot of like rhetoric around it that isn't like necessarily true on all levels Mm. so okay um Abdo, and I hope you will forgive me for what I'm about to say, but you're slightly older than Lena is. I am, yeah, you know how old I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you came to using social media as a writer kind of later in life. Yeah. Um, how did you feel? How do you kind of, do, do, you, do you feel like you needed to think really carefully about how you were going to use it? I think it was really, really, it felt really new to me. Like, so <clears throat> I soon realised that actually without social media, I couldn't really ob- achieve the objectives that I wanted to achieve. So Things like greater representation or things like um, highlighting certain issues that I'm quite passionate about, and that's why I write, and that's why I do my community projects. Um, I couldn't really do it without the social media. So I'll just give you, a, just give you an example of, of putting yourself out there. Uh, recently, I got some creative practice funding last year um, to research um, World War II Burma, because my late father fought in Burma. And um, again, it's something that's not really recognised very much, not in films or books or anything, so I really wanted it. It's going to be my first historical novel, so I wanted to do the research. So I was, you know, on Twitter about it and everything, and then a Channel 4 producer got in touch with me. She said, oh, I've just seen your tweets. Um, she said, we're doing a, a documentary. I can't give too much away because I have to sign an NDA and all that, but um, a documentary with a famous person whose relative also fought in Burma, and I was one of the people that they interviewed uh, and I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't gone on social media. And there's been loads of opportunities that have come my way like that. Okay, thank you. Um, Lena, just briefly going back to when you were still working at a publishing house, mm. can you give us a sense of what a publishing house would prefer or possibly even expect of a writer? Mm. Um, it obviously depends on the publisher. Yeah. I can't speak for all of them. But in general, it is great if you do have some kind of presence, even if you're like attending something like this and somebody can tag you on social media. Like The very simple thing of just turning up and being able to be tagged, <laughs> that should just be an, a normal thing. Um, but I think when it comes to actually having a presence and making stuff, that obviously isn't any contractual obligation to do it, but it is something that's so helpful for marketers if they are doing stuff on social media so that they can tag you, so you can retweet stuff. And if you want to make your own stuff, you're obviously going to, you're the person who knows your book best. Like being very real, everybody who works on your book in a publishing house probably hasn't read it. Not all of them can. Um, when I was working on stuff, I was working across maybe 50 to 60 books every month like I'm I'm not going to read them so if you're the author and you know your book best and you know the secret things about it or the unexpected characters that turn up in it or the weird research you had to do you already have all of that 
uh, information. So I think in some ways it's great to like n not have to do that twice and for you to be able to either provide a publishing house with those kind of like autobiographical stuff, maybe some pictures of you doing parts of the research or the writing. If you can provide them with that, they can put it on social media, but also you can put it on your own. And I think it's a great way that if people do find you that you have a kind of backlog of story a bit of a look like you're filling out your portfolio of yourself as a writer and I don't think it, it doesn't always have to be like you've been published in this or you've, you've had this great accolade just even if you don't have loads of followers having a presence that shows that you care about your writing and you work hard at it and that you're excited about it and you're excited about the research behind it or the process like all of that's really exciting for readers to find so yeah. it's just so a lot of authors that I worked with had smaller followings but they got really lovely messages from like the public that they wouldn't have seen so I think it's really nice to just be present even if you're not aiming to be really famous okay so let's talk about the very fact of marketing yourselves because as you're in your writer lives you have to do that funny thing of being the writer and having it be very personal and you spent a lot of time with it and it's your baby but then all of a sudden you're having to speak about it as a, almost like a third person um, so I wonder Lena if you can talk a little bit about the kind of more writing side of what you do and how you've moved to then talking about that in a public way and, and, and how that's felt. Yeah, so um, my YouTube channel actually started off as a poetry blog. Um, on the lead up to publication, um, I did quite a few um, poetry experiment videos that weren't labelled as poetry, kind of tricking people into watching them, um, where I did a, like, a week's challenge where I'd write a poem every day based on a different lipstick colour that I had in my collection, like stuff like that. Or I did ones that were based on like weird stock footage I'd found on the internet. <laughs> um, so I did like kind of weekly challenge videos that were just about like showing and the message wasn't buy my book it was you can write poetry too it's not that hard <laughs> you know and just like it doesn't have to be perfect you can base it on very uh, superficial um stimulus and it can still be interesting so I've done a lot of that like I self-published as a poetry zine like two three years ago and that I did a lot of stuff around like sending people secret poems so if they pre-ordered it um I would send them like a secret dm with a poem that wasn't in the collection and and like using the stuff that actually I would have otherwise put in the bin on social media to like show people my style of writing show them a bit of what they get before they buy the book um so that's that's a really interesting example in the poetry world in Abda's case your books is it three books you've had published now uh, two published two published yeah. um they are both quite sensitive, quite difficult topics. Yeah. And I know that what you found on social media was that you, to a certain extent, wanted to find a way to be able to talk about those topics, didn't you? Yeah, um, I think my book, both my novels tackle really, really, you know, deal with really difficult issues, quite taboo subjects. So for me, talking about those subjects, so I tend to take it as, it's more of like a discussion approach. Mm -hmm. So for example, with my first novel, Stained, um, it, I mean, it's about rape and it's about preserving family honour, and these are not easy subjects to write about or read about. However, um, the messages that I got after women read that book were just, I can't even describe the phenomenal, but one in particular has always stuck with me, and that was a woman who, who wrote to me and said, I've just finished reading your book, and as a direct result of your book, I'm going to go and report my rape to the police. I was raped four years ago, and I didn't go to the police, and I was... Um, told not to because, you know, because of family honour and all that kind of stuff. So um, I talked her through the process, we exchanged emails. Um, so for me, I think, I think, you know, talking about 
the effect that words can have. We're writers. I mean, I always ask people, why do you write? Because I know why I write. I write because I want to highlight certain issues. I write because I want more, more representation in this industry, uh, see more faces like me. Um, so for me, my kind of like social media is all about, po uh, not poking, I suppose that's the wrong word, but, but you know, sort of You're highlighting things that yeah. maybe others shy away from. So, uh, you know, words do have power. So we are responsible, you know, when we write, and about, especially about difficult subjects, that we do it uh, in a way that's sensitive and in a way that's positive, you know, but without shying away from... What I quite, quite often get attacked on social media because um, I remember one post I put up about an, an honour killing and somebody t uh, um, accused me of being paid by, uh, I don't know who, to malign the state of Pakistan. That's not true at all. I'm here in my Pakistani dress today because uh, it's Eid, Eid Mubarak, everybody, if anybody's celebrating. But, you know, it's, you will get attacked when you talk about difficult things. But that goes with the territory as well. But it's also, what, what occurs to me is that actually what you've also done is allowed a community that hasn't been able to speak about these things to either have you as a representation of that or to speak themselves. Through, through social media, you're able to find those people who recognise that experience. That's it, isn't it? And that's what marketing comes down to. That also yeah. that be then becomes your audience. And actually, it goes back to something that I think was said at one of the first panels, that Generally speaking, the writing world, the publishing world, the reading world is nice, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You will maybe get the odd kind of odd thing, um, but they're easy to block. But generally speaking, what you will get are the nice messages. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure this has been your experience, all three of you. And I think I wanted to say as well, I agree with you. I think the, the, the weird interactions are there, but they're very, you know, they're few and far between. And, but I, I also think that it's way less weirdness that I've got than when I worked in retail or at behind a bar like you, you encounter if you encounter a large amount of people you're going to encounter some weirdos that's just it's not a, so I think again it's the news coverage makes it out like oh there's loads of weirdos on social media and I'm like I don't know have you stood at a bus stop at one in the morning like there's going to be weird people in the world like it's okay and I, I much prefer being on social media to working in retail because you can't block people in you can't walk away so I'm here now with Lena Norms, a poet, YouTuber, book blogger, Renaissance woman. Is that, is that a fair description? <laughs> General gob on a stick. <laughs> Professionally gobby, that's what I say. So what's, what's good about this place? It's so nice because you, you end up coming across people and bumping into people you wouldn't have otherwise. And especially kind of post-pandemic, it's so nice to just see some friendly faces, have a chat and, and get excited with people who are genuinely really excited about writing and kind of bouncing off each other's energy and stuff. It's really nice. Is it your first time here? It isn't. I came about three years ago, but which now feels like a, a lifetime ago, but it's really, really nice to be back. Why would you recommend it to aspiring writers at an event like this or this specific event? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's good because sometimes you're just alone in your room writing and you kind of really get inside your own head. And it's really nice to chat to people who are all like different kind of um, phases of their writing journey. And your writing journey isn't just like this upward trajectory that's like a, a very clear path. A lot of people will show you how wiggly the path is and how there's like peaks and troughs. So it's really nice to just be able to meet people who are right at the beginning of that process people who have already kind of been around the houses a few times and done it quite a lot and just just to kind of get outside of your own head and work out where you're at with it it's really lovely this event is is for writers very specifically but it's not really about how to write a lot of it i'm hearing about is about how to to get your work out there and you were talking about how to deal with the kind of the potential pitfalls of social media do you think that's a 
an important skill for a writer to learn? Yeah, it's, it's, it's important, but I think it's also that you might already have that skill. You know, it's just communication, especially when it comes to being a writer. It's copywriting. <laughs> you can do that. And especially if you, if you have a wide vocabulary and you have a bit of a sense of humor, which you must have if you like writing, um, then you'll already probably have a lot of the skills that other people in other fields might not to use social media. Um, so I think in that way, it's, it's, it's a great space for writers to be in. And also, um, it's not just for publicizing your writing, it's also for getting inspiration. There's lots of like weird historical facts I've come across lots of strange ways that humans behave on the internet that's actually come as inspiration for some of the poetry that I've written so I think as well it's actually a great place to dwell and spy on people and kind of look around as well as just shouting about your own stuff now I'm going to put you on the spot here you are a poet can you in in five words or less sum up the uh, the writing West Midlands conference I'll give you uh, 10 seconds a sparky, glittery place to meet other creative idiots. <laughs> I think we'll leave that there. Thank you very much. Thank you. With Lena's piercing analysis of the nature of those attending ringing our ears, we're suddenly in the company of novelist and deadpan humorist Lindsay Davis. I was allegedly interviewing Lindsay, but to be honest, I just let her talk. And boy, was she good at talking. Listen out for advice about chairs particularly. I was born and bred in Birmingham, and I think um, plunging straight in, for me, this is, this is a, a critical part of why I am successful as a writer, because one of the things people will always say is they can hear me in my written work, and I know that's because I'm just a brummy telling stories the way that Brummies tell stories. Um, it's one of, those, one of those things that I've had to fight a bit, that um, Brummie, Brummies are not seen as, um, well, there's an elitist view that doesn't, doesn't favour the Brummie. I think those of you who are will know what I'm talking about. And although I had a good classical education, I could speak posh if I had to. Um, we're not, for instance, famous for our humour in the way that Glaswegians and Cockneys are. And yet one of the things people praise me for is the way I use humour. And I'm, I'm not consciously using humour. I'm just writing the way we speak because we are dry and fatalistic and at our best, incredibly funny. So I, I lived in London for a very long time which is good because you, you have to observe the other side. But I, I came back almost 10 years ago and it was, it was wonderful. Well, uh, I, I gave a brief summary of some of the things you've done. I know you've published many, many books. And Do you want to add anything else to your journey that might be interesting to yes. hear about? Let, let me tell you, this began in the late 1980s and I'm conscious there may be people here who weren't even born then. So I'm, I'm here representing the the grandma side of the writing. Um, I had been a civil servant and I, I ran away because I was unhappy with my promotion prospect. At that point, when I decided I would start to write, publishers said, don't give up the day job because you'll never earn your living as a writer. I had given it up. And for me, that was actually motivation, of course. Um, I write to pay the mortgage in the gas bill. Nobody yet has spoken of the money, but the, there is money involved in writing. And I, I think it's quite important because you're asking people to pay for your work. And that, that makes you value your work as a 
product, if I can use a Birmingham manufacturing term. Um, so I, I had to very quickly learn to write in a way that I could sell, or I had to go back to having what I jokingly call a real job. Um, it took me five years. I never stopped smiling in the whole of that time because I was so glad to have left the civil service. And along the way, I started with, I wanted to write historical novels. Everybody said, there is no market in historicals. Now, if you look at what is being published now, you will find that very hard to understand. The second thing was... Um, when I couldn't sell my Civil War stories, which is what I really wanted to write, I changed to the Romans because I thought nobody else was writing about the Romans and you had to be original. This is, in publishing terms, not true. They want you to write something that somebody else has already done successfully because they understand that and they can sell it that you are like X or Y. I kept going because I didn't know any better. I was so naive. Um, and eventually, I had my Roman work published by an editor who had an empty list. And that brings me to you need an agent because they will know where that bloke is who has nothing on his desk. I would never have known. Um, he, he took two. So that was a series almost from day one. And off I went. Um, after, after 20 years, I felt I'd said everything I could about Falco and his, his wife and life partner, Helena, who is never mentioned by anybody, but she's just as important. And so I thought I'd write something different. And first of all, I wrote a standalone novel. That, that was fine. It ended with the main character being assassinated. After which, to my astonishment, somebody stood up in an event and said, is it going to be a sequel to Master and God? No, he's dead. Blood on the <laughs> Um And then, then I did my Flavia Albia spin-off stories. Now, this, this will interest you. I thought with 20 much-loved books behind me that people would trust me. And if I thought that Flavia Albia was a goer and fun to write about, therefore fun to read about, that would be all right. I actually got a lot of letters saying, we're not going to read that, we want Falco. Um, I think part of that was they thought if they said it, I would go back to Falco. And I, I was determined because I am very stubborn. I'd, I'd learned when writing my um, standalone about a paranoid tyrant that I am a paranoid tyrant. <laughs> So the more they said, we want Falco, the more I said, you're getting Flavia, aren't you? <laughs> and it took me, I would say, three books before I started to get people saying, yeah, all right, we'll read her. And four, five books, and they started secretly saying, we like her more. Um, which just gives you an idea of the length of time it takes to get established, even when you thought you were established, with writing something new. It's terrifying, really. Well, that brings us to two things. I'll, I'll come to um, the money in a little while. Um, but the ability to just keep on going. I mean, first mm. of all, to spend that five years getting two novels ready to sell and, and having pitched them to an agent, and then not necessarily knowing that it was going to always be plain sailing, and I'm sure it hasn't been, but <laughs> then to carry on for a number of decades. Now, that's something most of us in this room, you know, whatever age we are, because we we're not, haven't had your track record, we haven't done. What, would you say something about what you need 
what characteristics you need to just keep on going. And I think you might say something about Midland stubbornness, mightn't you? You will notice I have a lumbar cushion behind my back. Never mind a story arc. Look after your back is my best advice <laughs> to writers. Right. So a good quality chair, adjustable in every way. Good, yes. Ergonomic uh, equipment. You can damage yourself irretrievably, but if you want a career as a writer, you've got to be a physical specimen to start with. Um, but it's, it's much more than that. It's such fun. <laughs> I am not going to stop so long as I think it's still good. There is a worry. What if I wasn't any good and they wouldn't tell me because they're scared me? Or because publishers are, I'm being cynical here, publishers might think, well, we still sell a few even though they're rubbish. Um, But so long as I can keep going, my business plan is that I will write 20 Flavia Albias to match the 20 Falco books. And that's, that's fine until you think I'll be 83. But I, I suspect you'll be fine at that point. Um, you'll yes. still carry on doing it. Yes. Um, okay, that's really... That, so, you, again, you've mentioned things I hadn't thought about. You mentioned business plan. You've mentioned pension. We need to secure our futures. We and, and that brings me to organisations, for instance, like the Society of Authors or the Writers Guild. And now, I, I mentioned to many writers, I say, join a union if you can, yes. because they will protect your interests. Would you like to say a little bit about yes, how valuable you think that is? I'm assuming you Absolutely. do. I, I joined the Society of Authors when I had my very first work, which was a magazine serial published, so I didn't have an agent, and they vetted the contract, which was pretty easy because it was a letter. Um, and, and they more or less said, stop worrying, just say yes and do it. Um, Organisations like that and also agents will secure your work in a way that as a starting out writer you probably can't do unless you are in the legal profession think about this my my first falco book published in 1989 is still in print that means that the contract terms which govern it are what what i signed up to in 1989 i had an agent who got me a really good deal If she hadn't done that, I could have spent the past, however many decades it is, um, not earning as much as I could. And we don't earn a lot, even if you're writing best-selling continuing series. So so every rate in that contract matters. And I would have lost out a lot if that hadn't been right. So without thinking about it, when you sign your very first contract, you, you may be committing yourself to something more than you imagined. I never thought that in 2020 I'd still be working on that contract and all the ones afterwards. So um, take care of your product because it's something you've laboured over and it's, it's something where, if it's any good, you deserve to get the best deal for it. Well, that is uh, a message we would completely endorse. Um, this possibly reflects your upbringing, but uh, for in the Midlands, is that your advice is practical. But I also yes. know that um, you are looking to bring people joy and pleasure from storytelling. Yes. So I'm going to ask you to kind of set aside the, the practical stuff and the, you know, I'm stubborn, I want to make hear it. What is it that still makes you want to do that process? And what well, started you making to want to do that process? 
um, when I was five, I came home and said to my mum, we were learning the alphabet, and I was enthused beyond belief because the teacher had said we didn't have to, to practice our letters copy out from a book. She'd said, or you can make up your own. And that, for me, was the most magical moment and sums up why I'm writing. But lockdown has given me a, an extra dimension of understanding of this. Um, because I've got a long series, people who were in difficulties have been able to go back and lose themselves in ancient Rome with a lot of stuff to read. And I've realised what I'm giving to them, which is solace, escapism, joy, because they are funny, because I am a brummy. Sorry, I was... I was uh, yeah. You're crying. You don't, no, you don't want to see me He's crying. got tears. I, I normally <laughs> went to the end of the conference before I weep like a child, but, you know, you're, you're, we're peaking too soon. Um, we are going to have some questions from the audience to stop me, you know, weeping like a child. Um, but it is, it, it's, of course, so nice to hear us reminding ourselves that the reason we do this yes. stuff, call it art, call it cultural, call it stories, is because we take an innate pleasure in giving pleasure to other people with our imagination. Yes, but also um, getting it yourself, because, as yeah, I said, yeah. it is so, so it's a twofold thing. What, what else would anybody do? Yeah. Good question, yes. So, um, we have got a little bit of time for some questions. If you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up. We'll try and bring a microphone to you. So, there's a question down here, this aisle here. The late, if you could run... Well, don't run. I mean, health and safety. Yes, yes. Um, Take care. Because, don't fall down yeah, the stairs. Um, think of what Lindsay said about your back. You don't want to fall downstairs. So, <laughs> question from, I think it's Mary, if I'm correct. Put your hand up there, Mary. Good. Hello. Um, I was just wondering about the process um, when you'd obviously published a lot of books and then at some point somebody picked up the work and wanted to put it on the radio. Um, And I just wondered if you could um, maybe explain a bit more about how that went. Yes. So um, just... How much you like hearing the you know your work dramatised yes, and, um, and what you prefer perhaps? Well, first of all, we go back to what was being said earlier about you need to have contacts. The person who dramatised my work and who persuaded a producer to put it on uh, the radio was called Mary Cutler, who for many years was the senior scriptwriter of The Archers. Mary Cutler was in my class at school. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to start early. <laughs> you you have to school, be... What school was it? This is King Edwards, right. which, to which we were both in those days able to go because Birmingham Council made it a direct grant school and paid our fees. So I've known Mary for a very long time, and I, I think that's key as to why they are good adaptations, because in the most literal sense, I know where she lives. <laughs> Um, she could not afford to make a mess of it. I was going to use a ruder word there. (laughs) So Mary had wanted to to do this for a very long time, and in the end, um, the BBC agreed that that they would. And they used the Archers studio when it wasn't being used for the Archers, and we had the Archers team, and we had Anton Lesser was Falco, and a really good Falco, I have to say. And that that was because, at the time, he lived in Moseley and therefore was cheap, though an excellent actor. Um, And so Mary Mary did a script, and I had a few comments which she ignored, but basically it it was fine. And so I I came up and I listened to it, and uh, 
there were some surprises for me. First of all, when actors read your work, which you have written and you think you know everything that's in there, they can give more meaning than you knew was there. That, that startled me somewhat. And then when they did a whole read-through of, of a book, in effect, or a script, I knew how it ended and all of that, but I was in tears. It moved me hugely, which, again, I didn't expect. Mm. And the contacts you mentioned, of course, we, we, we can't all hope to have gone to school with somebody who will be no. so but, useful. Having said that, it's worth sort of stopping and thinking, do I know anybody who knows anybody mm. who might know somebody? And um, I, mean, I, I know through BBC Radio myself that um, radio producers are desperate for new work. There's an internal market... Uh, they've used up all the good ideas long since. They are relying on people coming to them to say, you know, I've got something good. And actually, moving, having a novel put onto radio is, a, is a, a not unusual thing to do and a great thing to do. But equally, if you're going to be another form of writer, to start with radio, radio drama in the afternoons perhaps, and then move on to something else is also a reasonably good thing. It movie. is. Um, and I will say that my agent was quite dismissive of radio, but in fact, over the years, because they were done quite a long time ago, they have brought me new readers in a way that she probably didn't really expect. The, the money was pitiful, so being a Scotswoman, she, she disapproved of it somewhat. Well, that's great. That's a lovely question. Thank you very much. Um, we have time for one more question. And uh, Yeah, a gentleman in the T-shirt. Yes. Um, yes, you, you talked about um, uh, uh, looking after yourself physically, your back and, and hands and that. I just wondered if you had any... Uh, advice for uh, mental and emotional well-being as well in terms of you know the possibility of, of burnout i think if you're enjoying it you're much less likely to have mental problems of any kind not just to do with your writing because you'll be happy and, and that will come through in your writing don't forget if if you're a happy author writing and thinking oh this is really good fun the reader will catch that and so it, it you win all all round Thank you. I, I, it's just crossed my mind, of course, that what you are describing is essentially based on the fact that you love the writing mm. and you're not necessarily so concerned about being the writer. Yeah. Would that be a, a reasonable analysis? I, I think that's so. I, I would also say that the writer sort of isn't me. And normally when I do things, and it's not as hot as it is now, I, I wear a suit because I think... I become her. She goes out, she talks, she is a professional person, and I'm inside going... <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's the person who writes the books, in fact. Well, um, you've, been, you've been a dream to interview, Lindsay. Okay. Thank you. And, and um, well, you know, because I was honest with you, I said one of the reasons I wanted to have you here was to remind all of those who are starting out that we've got many decades ahead of us, to remind those who've already had many decades that now is not too late to start no, and you never. can still have go on to 84 and race Lindsay to the end if you wish to. <laughs> um, and also that, you know, we need to enjoy that process if we're going to keep going for that length of time. So mm. for goodness sake, get a good chair and, <laughs> and lumber support. Well, I didn't know that bit, but you've now given me that bit as well. Um, you've, you've given us lots of inspiration and a fair amount of joy, I have to say, in hearing you talk about the fact that you... you what you've done and how much you've enjoyed it, reminding us that, you know, one of the reasons we write is that we like to do writing. Well, so would you please join me in thanking Lindsay Davis. Hello, we're here in the break, and I'm here with uh, one of the attendees, uh, poet Barry. Hello. Hello, and why are you here today, Barry? 
because I'm a poet and writing conferences are great places to network, to meet other people and just hearing the, the experience of experienced writers and how they've gone about you know, managing their lives in terms of being a writer. This event obviously taking place here in the University of Birmingham. Uh, you mentioned there you, you go to a number of these events for networking. Is there anything particular in this region you think that, that makes it important that we have this event here? Yeah, it's my region. Um, I'm from Shropshire. It is important, and I think because writing West Midlands and the, um, the networking in the West Midlands is so strong, what you know is, is put on in the West Midlands is really impressive. And I think, you know, kudos to those people that are working to achieve that. So yeah, it's really important. If there were a listener here who's thinking of attending next year, what would you say to them? Well, you know, is it worth coming to this uh, to this conference? Yeah, undoubtedly, I'd recommend it. I think there's things usually, I mean, it's always a wide range of subjects. And I think that one or two of those things will naturally appeal to a certain person. But actually, the things that you don't expect to appeal to you um, quite often give you insights, which do, you know, you take some of the insights that you hear and you think, oh, actually, that's really interesting. Now, you know, I'm not a novelist, but, you know, hearing somebody talking about, you know, publishing their own novels, really interesting. And I think that makes you think, oh, is that is that a sort of pathway that I could follow in, in my own sort of work? And also, you know, talking to people in breaks, you know, people coming up to you and saying, oh, should be on my podcast. And it's great. You know, it's just part of like being part of the writing community. I feel community attired. Community attired. Uh, you heard it here first. Yeah. Uh, it's a poetical uh, invention here yeah. at the National Writers Conference. Thank you very much, Barry, and hope you enjoy the rest of the event. No problem. Thank you very much. So, hello. Uh, what's your name? I'm Claire Bennis. And Claire, why are you here today? Um, I'm a full-time professional writer, which is quite rare, and I feel very blessed to do it. Um, I spent the, the plague years sitting at home catastrophizing, but that's what I do for a living anyway, because I write medical drama. <laughs> <laughs> so getting out and being here is just a treat. It's such a beautiful place and it's it's feeding my soul being around all these interesting people already and it's not even lunchtime. And what is it that you're that you're most looking forward to today? Um it, it, it's the interaction of meeting people and hearing about things that are outside of my sphere. It's just interesting finding out about new, new writery stuff. Have you been to the Writing West Midlands conference before? I um, came the first year it was here, which I think is five years ago, um, and had a wonderful time. And then, of course, the world happened. So this is my second visit. And it, it is, um, I've, I will come again because it's just joyful. And what do you think of the surroundings here? We're in the Bramwell building here at the University of Birmingham and it's a beautiful day. Well, it's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? It's really lovely. It's beautiful red brick, Victorian-y financed stuff. I'm an expert. <laughs> so I'm here with uh, best-selling novelist Gillian McAllister, um, straight off uh, your panel event this morning. Um, thanks for speaking to us. Why are you here today? Well, I just, I really do love to speak to aspiring authors because I think all authors were one at one time and it's just, just so good to pass on the, the advice really um, because it's a, 
tough and lonely road to get published often and I think people kind of need their hands holding you know I, I always say I got so many rejections I didn't know anyone you know I, I don't have a father that edits the Sunday Times or something you know like I don't have any connection and I and I got here and I think I hope people seeing that will sort of feel uh, reassured by that. A lot of things that were said at the event was about kind of um, sticking with it and about kind of dealing with rejection do you think that's one-off if not the most important skill for an aspiring writer yeah I mean I don't I can't really think off the top of my head of any other job where you're required to put as many man hours in by yourself for free and somebody might reject it in a single sentence like Mm. it's brutal and so yeah I mean I would not be published if I if I had given up at the first 100 rejections even so definitely perseverance is key (laughs) you're a very productive writer I mean what are we on you've just uh, delivered your eighth book I believe how do you do it how do you do you keep going (laughs) um uh well uh dysfunctional attitude to work (laughs) uh no boundaries (laughs) um a understanding partner but um in all seriousness I do just write a thousand words a day uh that's all I do uh and I, I, I did them on my wedding day. So, you know, I'm pretty militant about it. <laughs> well, well, if you can write on your wedding day, you can write any day. So thank you very much for speaking to us, uh, Gillian McAllister. Thank you very much. Thanks. Having heard from best-selling novelist Gillian McAllister, I'm back on stage talking to writers Hayley Francis, Sarah Jane Arbery and Kate Innes about how to keep going. Wise words yeah, from all, them all. We all get up in the morning and most of us, myself included, manage to get up and never do any writing Even if we think the night before, I'm definitely going to get up and do writing, something happens. So I'm going to ask the free writers to tell us how they manage to do writing against the inevitability of fate, suggesting that they shouldn't. I'm going to put Hayley on the spot, first of all. Um, Hayley, um, how do you... Where does writing fit into your daily life and how do you make sure you do it? Uh, So... In my daily life, I'm just scared I'm going to lose a thought or I see a headline or a sentence in something I'm reading or something on social media or, you know, somebody, I'm having a conversation with someone and they say something quite beautiful or the words, how the words come together, I have to write it down. So I just have... I have Evernote, and there are <laughs> hundreds of just one-line pages <laughs> in my Evernote, and sometimes I manage to go back and uh, finish some finish them off. But on the evening, generally, right before I go to sleep, uh, I have uh, a second sentence, or ah, oh, uh, I could finish off that line, and then I end up just kind of writing uh, a poem or some draft of a poem, and it all comes out. Can I just interrupt, just to mention what Evernote is? So Evernote is a piece of software, a little app. You can get a free version or a paid version. It Mm. can be on any one of your devices. I've got it on my phone, on my laptop, on my desktop. It's like a notebook. And and, uh, unlike a regular notebook, um, if you think, I did write down a line about, let's say, slugs, to refer to the previous session, (laughs) um, I wonder where it is. You can search for the word slugs, and it will find you the notes that feature the word slugs. So if you're the kind of writer who's ended up with 75 different notebooks in which you are sure genius exists, this is a very useful tool. Um, I interrupted you, Hayley, on behalf of Evernote. No, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, But the biggest thing for me that's been for writing is external deadlines. So looking at what poetry competitions there are, what opportunities there are to get published in magazines, etc., and using those deadlines 
as an opportunity to edit, either edit poems I've already got that need editing or write something specifically for that. And that's been the thing that's got me writing the most. So it's the deadlines that get me writing more than anything. Okay, okay. That's good to know. Uh, But let's hear how, Kate, how you ensure that on a day when you get up thinking, I must write, how that writing actually happens. Um, So continuing writing is... um, obviously a big challenge um, because the world seems to conspire against us but um, what I have noticed I do is I I set up some scaffolding around which it's not so scary to write so I will either um, decide that I want to write about a particular place or about a particular object or I, a bit like Joe was saying, um, I find an a unsuspecting museum or something and go and suggest that I sit in their gallery and write about the artwork um, in a sort of residency for which I get no pay whatsoever. And that forces me to do some writing. Um, I'm not a person who writes every day. I tend to have periods of very intense writing and then periods of reflection and research is what I call it, Um, and then another long period of very intense writing. So I know when I'm building up to an intense period of writing and I feel really uncomfortable leading up to it and then very, very scared while I'm doing it, and then I have about two days of great relief afterwards and then I start editing. It does sound like having your appendix out, yeah. it? Um, which is maybe not the greatest advert. Yeah. But, um, so Jane, how do you manage to keep writing uh, when you feel you need to write? Um, well, I feel in some ways a little bit of a fraud because like Kate, I don't write every day. But I kind of find it, I mean, I've got to be honest, I mean, I find it difficult actually in my writing life to actually do the writing because um, I would say in answer to that, Jonathan, I've, I've got three strands as like a as my writing life. So I'm a writer, um, but since um, the plague, as was mentioned earlier, I've, de- I've developed an interest in script writing. I am a performer, so I perform my own work, whether that's poetry or scripts that I've written, um, and I also run workshops. So trying to get it that I'm not con- constantly facilitating other people's creativity but actually carving out some space for myself, I actually find quite difficult. But I kind of feel like I'm, I'm getting there, and I, I, yeah. Good, good. I want to well, ask us all about the, uh, the notion that we should write every day. A couple of you have mentioned, apologetically, that you don't write every day. <laughs> um, I think we should put it on the record that you do not have to write creatively every day. And the person who said you have to write creatively every day should be hung, drawn and quartered because it is an incredible burden on all of us to think we should be writing every day. Some people do write every day. That's fine for them. I like the, uh, the uh, description that Kate gave of kind of knowing that you're going to need to write soon. The appendix, as it were, that needs to be taken out is, is, feeling, is rumbling. And, and that you know you're going to have to write, but you're not actually doing the writing yet. And then you book a time and then you'll write intensively and get a lot more from it than forcing yourself to write every day. I'm not against people writing every day, of course, but what I don't want is people to feel bad about themselves because they don't, because we all have different ways of writing. Um, another question then for, for all of you is um, looking at your writing practice over the last year or so, 
Can you identify what conditions need to be in place to allow you to write your best? I'll give you one example to kind of contextualise what I might be saying. Um, I have come across a writer who has said that they cannot write when the house they live in is empty. They need to have other people wasting their time watching television downstairs so they can sit virtuously elsewhere writing. But when the house is empty, um, somehow they don't have that contrast and it doesn't prompt them. I don't know. That's just one person. Uh, we'll go down the line again. Hayley, do you, can you identify the conditions that make it right for you to write? Um, well, I've got two very small children. Uh, so I so no to... is the answer. No, yeah, yeah. Um, I can think I've got, think I can go, oh, right, okay, I'm going to get up before them. Because I know Tony, I feel bad, if, I feel bad every day for not writing every day. Okay. But I also feel the pressure to write something good, you know. So that stops me from writing sometimes because I think, oh, I've got this thing that I want to write and I'll start writing it and then I go, oh, my God, this is so terrible. I'm just not even going to bother and then put it to the side yeah. and then other things get in the way, like the never-ending washing um, <laughs> so I, my conditions I need to at least have half an empty washing basket for some reason I need to be able to have the wash, hear the washing machine or hear the cycle <laughs> of the dishwasher and then I use that cycle of the dishwasher or the cycle of the washing machine as a time to write but I generally need, I need support with the children I need to not have them around me at all to write and that's quite tricky. But luckily, I have a very supportive partner. Uh, and I need to have clean surfaces in the kitchen. So, yeah. All right. Thank you for that. that was, <laughs> I, I hadn't entirely expected that answer, but that's a really lovely answer. Yeah. Um, Kate, what conditions need to be in place to allow you to actually do the writing? Quite similar without the cleaning. Um, I'm, I'm more of the uh, yeah, squalor kind of person. <laughs> but I need not to have people around me. Mm. And so I only started writing my first novel when my children were at school. So I had that period of time, which was about four and a half hours. And that's how I wrote my first novel, four and a half hour chunks. And um, it's been, it was almost impossible to do anything during lockdown because there were, they were everywhere. They were big, they're big teenagers and they were stomping about demanding food. Um, so I have got a little space above the garage, which is where every, all the junk gets put, and I sit in there with my computer, hoping that nobody's going to come in. Um, so I need quiet, I need aloneness, mm. and I think I need to become a little bit more flexible, possibly, about that, okay. because it means that I haven't been writing very much. Okay, well, we're all a work in progress, aren't we? And yes. I, I think actually I read, a, maybe it's a letter from Ted Hughes saying that he was most productive when he had a little desk in a hole underneath the stairs, you know. Yeah. And, it, and, and yet people are, tend to encourage to dream about having a wonderful writing room with a vista a, a, across, <laughs> the, across the Cotswolds. That isn't necessarily what you need, you just need a place. Anyway, um, Sarah Jane, uh, you can possibly see the Mulvans from where you live, but I don't know whether you look at the Mulvans when you write. But no, what, I don't. What, you don't, no, because... I, 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 um, uh, the condition... It's a rule. You never want to look <laughs> yeah. at the Mulvans. No, uh, the, the condition uh, that I need is I have to be in bed. That's it. Bed. I can mm. only write in my bed, on my laptop, with coffee, uh, on the bedside table. But that's... Yeah, that's, that's my uh, thing. Okay. But I would say the other condition is um, I've got to have a point to it. 
Mm. That's me. I, I just, I, I can't just write for the. Bleh. It has to be a point to what So can you define what that point, or give us an example? Okay, um, yeah, it was mentioned earlier today, actually. I think it was, a, well, I've made a note here, Jane Kermain saying um, commissions. Commissions and um, collaborations. That's mm. really what keeps me writing. And then I do my other, whatever I want to write about, around that. But what sparks me is um, somebody approaching me um, to write about a specific subject with a deadline, and something I find interesting. Yeah. You know, and if I get into that flow, then it'll, it'll seep out into other areas, other subjects that I'm interested in. So, hello. Uh, I'm here with another attendee at the Writers West Midlands Conference. Uh, hello, what's your name and uh, why are you here? My name's Jenny Owen. Um, I'm here today as a writer. I think it's a really excellent opportunity to network and meet other writers and also to continue to learn about the craft. And um, we can't know everything. We're continually learning. So being able to find out about things like publishing and marketing and uh, collaboration and, and projects is incredibly helpful. Is there anything that you're particularly here to learn today? Um, I'm particularly interested in hearing about how some of the speakers have set up their own projects and businesses and how a passion has turned into a, you know, a career. As a writer yourself, um, any tips that you have? A lot of the people that are here are aspiring writers at all different points of the journey. Any advice that you've ever received that you think that would be good to pass on? I think uh, there's two pieces of advice. One is to just write and give yourself permission to write really rubbish first drafts of things but to just write because if you don't get that draft out um, you know you're not going to have the chance to then work with it and as a good friend to me said it's okay to write rubbish because it clears the pipes out to, um, to for the good stuff and the other one is probably to, to really um, have confidence in your own writing and um, that re rejection is a huge part of that and that's absolutely normal and absolutely fine and not to be perturbed or put off if you begin your career by getting rejections. Okay, thank you very much for your time. More sound advice from one of our attenders. Now we hear from publisher Jane Kermain, Deborah Almer, founder of the Poetry Pharmacy and Kate Innes again, this time as a self-publisher. The event is chaired by Emma Bonniewell of Writing West Midlands. I... I've always wanted to be a writer for a very long time, ever since I was really small. So I studied English literature and when I finished at university, I was thinking, well, OK, what do I do next? And um, I've been slightly bitten by the publishing bug as well, being involved in putting together a student anthology. And um, I think what happened really was the sense that I wanted to stay near to poetry. I'd been studying poetry, I'd been writing poetry, and it had become a really big part of my life. And... I had this concept that partly if I could stay close to poetry in some way by publishing it, I would never kind of leave that world. So when I say I didn't get into publishing in, a, in the traditional sense, I got into it in a very DIY sense and set up um, Nine Arches Press, initially with Under the Radar magazine, um, which was a sort of entry point really. And it was a little bit inspired by that world of the fanzine of kind of um, opening gates really and very much with the magazine I wanted it to be a space where people could come in and um, bring um, interesting new work to it so that kind of then snowballed and like I say the side hustle that was the magazine and then the press and then the pamphlets and the poets grew into 
everything that I pretty much do now, which is, as well as magazines and publishing, is mentoring, is uh, poetry events, poetry festivals. And it sort of took over my life, really. Um, I do find that projects can be quite all-encompassing and it's quite hard to say no to a, to a wonderful project or a new idea. One thing that I would say to all of you as writers that is really valuable um, and has been really useful to me is always say yes to commissions because if you're in a fallow period and you're not writing very much or you're finding the motivation to do your own writing a little bit tricky, I'm really glad that I've kept that side of myself as a writer to one side. So yes, I, I, I am an editor and director at Nine Arches, but in my other life with my other hat on, I am Jane Kamein, poet um, and and writer. I write nonfiction as well as writing poetry. I've written books um, around the nature of writing and I write essays on writing poetry as well. Um, I found that really useful because commissions mean that you have always got some way of channeling your work. But the beautiful thing about commission is it always has a deadline and nothing can sharpen your imagination. Like A, a deadline and knowing that you need to get the invoice in after the deadline. So kind of, you know, there's an emphasis of kind of financial thing, but there's also the lovely thing of being given a commission that pushes you in often interesting ways. So I think seeking those things where you can externalise a little bit that motivation and work with other writers, collaborate, that can also be a brilliant way of keeping yourself nourished as a writer. You you don't lose anything by sharing and and working with other people. You gain from it enormously. It makes you a better writer. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, um, What about you, Kate? Um, I have reached a point where I've finished some books and I'm not quite writing the next one. And I need those commissions and, and people to come alongside and say, why don't we do something around this to get my engine going again? Mm. Um, it, it shouldn't be, self-publishing shouldn't be just solitary. There are so many people who are willing to help. Other writers are wonderfully friendly. Um, there's so many other artists who it's fun to work with and there are many organizations that want to work with writers and it's it's the more I put myself out there the more unexpected stuff comes back Mm. to take me in all sorts of new directions Mm. so say yes put yourself Mm. out there and and projects will come that that keep you going fantastic thank you Um, Can you talk to us about why you opted to go down the self-publishing route? Yeah, um, well, it wasn't intentional at the start. So I have a background as an archaeologist and as a teacher. And I suppose I thought in um, my naive way when I started writing historical fiction that um, it was going to be a trajectory a bit like... uh, a beanstalk, so you just go in one direction, publish a book, publish another book, publish another book, get to the goose that lays the golden egg. (laughs) And um, I very quickly realized that um, that was not going to be my trajectory at all. Um, So I had spent five years writing a novel, The Aaron Towers, which is... um, medieval historical fiction and it's set in Shropshire which is where I live and what I'm really interested in and it's about a young woman who gets into a lot of trouble it's a sort of slightly genre bending 
story because it's literary, but it's an adventure. And so when I came to seek representation for it... All publishers don't like a genre-bending thing. No, they don't. (laughs) No, they don't, as I found out. And eventually, after lots of um, people said, it's well-written, but not for us, one agent very kindly explained the problem, which is what I've already said. Nobody's ever heard of any of the characters in your book, Nobody knows anything about the medieval period, especially the late 13th century. And the marketing department will never say yes because they don't have a hook. So it's well written. When you decide that you want to write something about someone famous, maybe from the Tudor period, the Roman period, or the Victorian period, <laughs> come back to us and we will you know, definitely have a look at it. And at that point, I had to make a decision. Was I going to do that? Was I going to shelve my book? Or was I going to take um, the route of self-publishing? So I thought that if I was going to do it, I wanted my books to be just as good as any traditionally published book. And it proved to be very popular. I think one of the reasons why is that Shropshire doesn't... (laughs) have that many famous authors uh, currently living there. So they were quite keen um, to support a book that was written about the area. Um, And so it became quite a good seller locally. Um, The local bookshops took it up. And then there was a demand for a sequel. Um, At which point I thought, shall I try again for representation? I thought there's no no real point because it's a sequel. So, um, and I suppose I felt, well, this isn't going too badly. (laughs) So I'll carry on. And so it, it became a sort of rolling stone of books. And that really is how it happened for me. Everybody's story is very individual. And I know that one of the reasons I was successful was because I was filling a niche that nobody knew it existed before. But um, yeah, that, that's really worked. key, I think, isn't it? That really helps, isn't it, having that little niche? Yeah. And um, Deb, talking of niches, um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, you created one, didn't you? Do you want to talk us through yeah, that? Yeah. Well, it started really. Um, I did a degree and then an MA in creative writing. And like Jane, I really wanted to stay in that world. And um, I was looking on eBay and saw a 1950s <laughs> ambulance for sale and thought, I know, I can be an emergency poet. So um, despite friends and family um, saying, no, Deb, I bought... <laughs> I, was, I was a single parent at the time. Um, I had no money and I bought it on my credit card. Um, and, uh, so anyway, so I became an emergency poet, dressed up as a doctor, um, had emergency poet painted on the side, um, and, and went to one poetry festival to try it out. And people came into the back of the ambulance, um, lay down on a stretcher, um, and I would do a kind of pastiche of a, of a therapy session and prescribe them poetry to make them feel better. Um, and it, it, it seemed to work. And so from that festival, I got invited to two more. And each festival, I got invited to another two festivals. And um, 
Then I was able to give up my sensible job and become a professional emergency poet. Um, and, and on it went. Yeah, it was... Uh, and, and yeah, I, I'm getting on a bit. So I, driving an ambulance with no power steering was um, exhausting. So um, I, I live in Shropshire and I was aware of a property for sale, an old ironmonger's with um, old, all the original shelves and fittings. Um, talked to my partner, <laughs> bullied my partner into buying it because I could imagine it looking like an old pharmacy with my bottles of pills with poems inside them on the shelves. And so that's what I've done. And I still do the consultations on a velvet chaise long. Um, <laughs> and I have central heating now, which is really good. Um, yeah, and then there are, it, it, there are sort of other projects from that project as well. Having heard about the poetry pharmacy, we moved to being a writer-in-residence. Chaired by me again, this featured Joe Bell, who has been poet-in-residence in many settings, and Sarah Letzer, currently a translator-in-residence with Aston University and Writing West Midlands. Well, you've really pointed out one of the most exciting things about being a, any kind of writer or translator-in-residence is, is that it, it does suddenly bring you into a place which might be, if not out of your comfort zone, certainly unexpected, Absolutely. and you'll be faced by unexpected creative activities. Um, Joe, can you say a little bit about what it's done for you as a writer yourself? What has it done for you? It got me paid uh, (laughs) in many cases, and we like pay, don't we? Um, Yes. And also taught me to network, because exactly as Sarah's talking about, uh, I I think sometimes we see ourselves as writers and teachers, yeah, or writers and, in my case, archaeologists or whatever. And in fact, if you can use the hinterland of your own life, whether that's you're a gardener or a physiotherapist or you have an interest in slugs, whatever it is, that would be a very special residence, wouldn't it? Um, I think it's taught me to, to value those connections and to see that they may all um, spin off into further opportunities for work, basically. But it's also taught me, definitely, to to look at the possibilities for my own work. So your comfort zone is not where the good work is. You know, getting out of your comfort zone and having to ask people for information or research things you haven't researched before or go into fields that you've not been in before is a really rich source of raw material. But you're also learning about institutions and you're learning about funding opportunities and you are putting yourself constantly in front of people who will remember you and who six months or two years down the line may say, who was that woman who was always going on about slugs? Um, the slug marketing board has, <laughs> has a little pot of money, uh, which, uh, and goodness knows, that's a tough job, yeah, the slug marketing board. So, um, you know, maybe we can, we can put them in touch. So, I mean, I, forgive me if that sounds vague, but what I'm just trying to get you to think about in any residency, and we'll talk in a moment about how to kick them off, is once you've got your foot in the door, pay attention to everyone in the organisation. Um, pay attention to every opportunity, creative or organisational, that presents itself. And think about what they need. That's, that's been a very good thing as well, because residencies often lie in the zone. It's not quite a commission. They're respecting you as a writer. They're trusting you to know your profession as a writer. So you have a lot of scope to go to them and say, I can do this, I can do this, I could do this. But you also need to listen to what they need as an organisation. 
we need more marketing material, we need to reach a different audience. So that's, I guess that's it really, learning about different ways to work the room, to be mm. cynical about it. And just, uh, maybe people sitting here thinking, this sounds great to be paid to go and be a writer in a particular uh, arena. Um, you could wait for the advert to come, but of course the advert may not come because, as you know, most organisations have no idea that they need a writer in residence, or never mind a translation residence. They're unaware of that, so you need to possibly step forward and make them aware of that. And I'm just going to mention, ask her to mention, you are doing some work as part of your project in Northfield with Northfield Arts Forum, which I think—that's right. With, I mean, um, I, I suspect they're an organisation didn't expect a translation residence to roll up and offer no, services. No, exa- exactly. Um, it's. It just happens. My, my son is at GOB. He, he's here and sings with the choir um, that is run at NAF on a Thursday evening. NAF is the Northfields Arts Forum. Um, and I just thought, well, they've got kids. Um, they have after-school activities, weekend activities, holiday activities. And I knew they were opening an arts space um, in Northfield Shopping Centre opposite Poundland. And I thought, well, there's a, there's a place where kids who won't normally have access or have um, any knowledge of languages might just be interested. So, I, I, again, I knocked on the door. I, um, through the Facebook page, contacted Naomi, who got straight back and said, it sounds fascinating. I've no idea what we can do together, but please come on a Thursday evening, um, meet, the, meet the team, and we'll see what we can do. And that's exactly what's happening um, in September, October time, got a five-week block of sessions, an hour and a half at a time, and kids between eight and fourteen-ish are going to be translating poems from different languages. So it could be it could be Mandarin, it could be Arabic, it could be French, German, Spanish. They will have no real idea of when they see the poem initially of what it's about. But it's I'll give them a skeleton version a skeleton version of the poem and then we're going to put it together and think about the, the, the meter and the rhyme and the you know the, the words that they can choose to develop that poem in whatever way they want and there's no right way of doing it but what they will have they can walk out of the NAF shop thinking I've just translated something out of Italian you know um, what um, I'm a language nerd. I think that's amazing, but um, uh, hopefully the kids will too. Okay. But that's what we're we're doing yeah. at, uh, at Northfield. But it was just a chance. Yeah, again, kitchen table. Yeah, I know, Joe. You've done a little bit of that knocking on doors. Do you want to say what 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 would your first uh, email or call be? What would that say? Um, well, the hint, the, the background to this is that basically I feel. A lot of the time we wait for that call or the knock on the door or the job advert which says the exact job you're looking for is here, you need to apply for it. And most of the time there's nothing to stop you inventing the exact job you wish to do and offering it to the people who can pay you for it. So my first email might be, for instance, to let us say I've discovered my passion for slugs So I call the slug marketing board. The person who answers the phone will not be the person I need to speak to. And it will probably be their job to keep me from the person I need to speak to. So if I ring up and say, hello, I'm a poet, you know, that's already going to turn most people off. I know that from long experience. Um, I'd like to come and write poems for you. Most of the people you're dealing with in any organisation have no idea what a writer can do. 
and they think that a writer in residence will just sit in the corner writing. So you need to say to them, hello, I'd like to, I'd like to come and write some poems. I'd like to find out more about slugs. I'd like to perhaps sit in your slug research centre and talk to your scientists. This is beginning to sound like a really... Sounds, good sorry, I'm, I'm, I've got my application form yeah. drafted already. Um, and, you know, the output of that might be, you know, new leaflets that you can preach the message of slug love. Um, who do I need to speak to about that? And you just pursue it and, and find out who the right person is. It's as simple as that. Pick up the phone and find out who to talk and to. And presumably a bit of empathy is required for you to know that they are wanting to communicate messages or to do certain things. Mm. So... One of the roles you took with the Canals and Rivers Trust, I don't know if you did it, or maybe the person who followed on, had to write some stuff to encourage people to be kindly on the towpath. Oh, that was Luke. Yeah, yes, yeah. not to ride yeah. their bicycles too fast. So I, got to, I was the first canal laureate, if you didn't know such a thing existed. <laughs> um, mainly because there aren't that many poets who live on boats. Um, but it, it continued because it was successful. And so Luke Kennard got the um, unenviable task of, of writing poems that had to ask people not to cycle on the towpaths and not to feed the ducks. Fair enough. You know, the, tra- the trade-off is he has to write something which is basically a commission um, and, and write it in a way that he can live by, you know, stand next to, sort of thing. But in terms of approaching organisations, that was a long-building relationship. Jonathan's right, local knowledge is going to be really important to you. So if you know that your local... Uh, library service runs a craft weekend or that it, or you're involved with your local pride committee um, you know how can you offer your services uh, and what I would encourage you to do as well is if you're nervous about the idea of a residency and the exposure make one for yourself which doesn't pay in the first instance go to Scarthin Books for instance as I did and said I'd like to sit in your reading room and talk to people as they come in and write them a little poem on demand um, and they said, yeah, all right then, what do you want in pay? And I said, 20 quid's worth of books. And they said, yeah, all right. In that instance, <laughs> it's, worth, it's worth doing it for free. You can, only you can decide. Yeah. But you can find ways to comfortably explore the idea of residency and what you can do without um, even going too far from home, actually, and find a sort of tailor-made residency which will do you some good in your community and show you the ropes a bit. And then you can go with a funding application to the Slug Marketing Board <laughs> and say, following my successful residence at the Mollusk Society, <laughs> I'm now applying to do the same kind of work. Well, those are some wonderful ideas. Um, a round of applause, please, for Sarah and Joe. Nearing the close of the conference, Blake took a few moments to talk to Bookshop on the Green, the local bookshop running our conference bookstall. Listen out for spontaneous laughter in the background. For what reason, we know not. Being a writer is all well and good, but what every writer needs, of course, is a reader. And a reader reads a book, and a book is sold in a bookshop. Well done, everyone, for keeping up. And I'm here with the representative of the bookselling industry here at Writing West Midlands. It's the Bookshop on the Green, and you are the owner, is that right? That's right. I'm Sarah Mullen, the owner of the Bookshop on the Green, and we're um, on Bourneville Village Green. Our front windows look over the Village Green, and our back windows uh, look out onto Cadbury Factory. Uh, so we have the waft of chocolate in the air. So... As well as selling books, what are you hoping to get out of today? 
Um, we just love coming here because it means that we can uh, be with our own tribe, be with uh, people who love books um, and have the, all those great conversations with authors and writers, aspiring writers, established writers and just enjoy uh, being part of that uh, literary ecology and just talking to people. It's just wonderful. How important is, do you think, that we have events like this in the West Midlands? Well, I think it's vital because um, writers need write, writing can be a lonely occupation, and it's just great to give um, a, a whole day to or a day out to writers to kind of come together, have that community aspects, and kind of be with their own people, have those really important conversations over lunch and uh, kind of when you're queuing up for a cup of tea, as well as hearing really inspiring uh, people who are who've kind of made it into publishing but also the very practical how to break into publishing and I just think it's a a really vital opportunity and it's great that it's happening in West Midlands. And writers themselves as customers uh, are they different from the regular reader? They're very discerning so they keep me on my toes um, but that's great and what I love about running an independent bookshop is um, I'm learning all the time too so um, uh, writers and all customers really recommend books to me and I recommend books to them and that's what's so brilliant about it is it's it's completely different from any other kind of retail where it's so much of it's about kind of conversation and I've come across some great books that that writers have recommended to me that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. One of the things we're hearing a lot from the speakers uh, today are around encouraging writers to write their true authentic story so what they're not talking about is jumping on trends and bandwagons having said that what are the trends that you're seeing in in the types of books that people are buying um so people are lots of people are asking books for uh, that bring hope books that spark joy books that are positive books that, to make them laugh we're getting loads and loads of requests in the shop for books to make make people laugh and i think that's as a result of uh, the start of the year being so downbeat with the war in ukraine and now cost of living crisis and just people wanting a book to uh, take them away everyday escapism opportunity to kind of switch off unwind relax and um, laugh so with that in mind, what would you recommend if I came to you and said, I need to laugh? Um, the book I've just finished is Lessons in Chemistry, uh, which did make me laugh out loud. Um, uh, but I think for aspiring writers out there, there's actually a need for more joyful and uh, funny books. Um, and, and yeah, so if, if, if comedy is your thing, I would definitely start writing and getting it published. Thank you, Sarah. Having heard about bookselling, we close the conference with yours truly talking about Arts Council England's Developing Your Creative Practice Fund. I was joined on stage by writers Roya Katiblu, George Tuli, and Andrea Mabrushimana, all of whom had made successful applications. And then a final few words from Blake. Thank you for listening. So Developing Your Creative Practice um, is a fund which started four years ago. It's managed by Arts Council England. Um, the criteria for applying for it are relatively broad. You need to be in England. You need to be an artist. Now, for the avoidance of doubt, um, anybody who is writing creatively as a writer, you are an artist in the eyes of the Arts Council. And, of course, in your own eyes, you should be either an emerging artist or an established artist. Um, the Arts Council are less inclined to fund writers, artists who are entirely stalled and are going nowhere. They, are, they want you to be optimistic about yourself. So you're all artists when it comes to applying to developing your creative practice, practice funding. The fund allows you to apply for up to between £1,000 and £10,000 to take some time and spend some money to develop your creative practice, which sounds very simple. Imagine the Arts Council's surprise when they started this fund that about 2 million people applied for it initially. 
It was very popular, and many people were disappointed because perhaps people just went straight into it to say, I'm a writer, I'd like you to give me money to sit in my pyjamas and write. It's slightly more complicated than that. As the title suggests, they're looking for you to take your existing creative practice and in some way develop it. And the bigger picture from the Arts Council is that we, they want to ensure that as a result of making this funding available, you will be a better, more interesting, more viable artist than you would be. So you need to start off with the notion that you've already got an artistic practice. So this fund isn't really suitable if you're looking to publish your very first poetry pamphlet. It's suitable if you've already got a little bit of experience. You may have had a poetry pamphlet published, or you may have had a short story published, or you may have developed your practice in some way, and you're looking to move on from that. It could either be that you want to get much better at doing what you're already doing, or you want to segue slightly to one direction or the other. So I know, for instance, that uh, a writer we've worked with in our region was a reasonably successful singer-songwriter on the local circuit. Certainly not a big name. Um, and they applied for funding to develop as a more literary poet. And they bought time to sit and write, but also time to bring in a mentor to work with them to improve the practice of the work they're producing. And that application was successful because the Arts Council saw that by investing money in that person, they were already backing somebody who'd shown some promise and they were given the chance to develop their promise. Um, the other two things I'll say about it before we, um, before we move on to our guests is, is that um, you do not need any matching funding. And also, you don't immediately need an audience or participant, which, again, is different from Arts Council project funding, where they rather like that you didn't just keep it to yourself, but you actually performed or presented or ran a workshop with other people. This is just about you. It's about you helping yourself, which is not normally an approach you go to when you go to the Arts Council. You normally talk about how you're going to help everybody. Instead, you're saying, I'm going to help myself. But the Arts Council are thinking, well, if you develop as an artist, that will improve the cultural life of our country generally in the long run. So it's a lovely scheme in that respect. The final thing I'm going to say is it operates four times a year on the Arts Council's website, which is a system called Grantium. So it's open for four times a year for four weeks. Um, and they make a decision in eight weeks, so let's say two months. So it's relatively quick. So that's kind of useful. It's not one of those bids where you don't know when you're going to hear about it or it takes you know, months and months. I'm sure I'll say other things about DYCP, and there will be lots of things I've forgotten and some things I may have got wrong. But let me first of all um, ask our free writers to just tell us what, what they've received the funding for, what, what they apply for. So I'm going to start with Roya. Roya. Hi. Um, I originally applied partly so that I could have more time to write um, my first novel and also so that I could do a, um, it's, what are they called, the Literary Consultancy Mentorship. So... Um, those are the two main reasons I wanted the funding. There's a little bit of travel and a little bit of research in there, but for the most part, those are the things I wanted. Okay, lovely. That's great. So you've got money to work on the novel, mm -hmm. which is music to many people's ears, I'm sure. Yes. Let's come to George and hear what you did. George. Yeah, hi. Um, so I've been working in poetry for a while, and I applied and received £8,343 to uh, make the move into working on a novel that I'd already started, and so it's about developing that forwards. Three days a week for six months. Wonderful. Great. Um, uh, Andrea, let's hear about your project. Hi. I'm um, a practising poet with uh, three pamphlets out, and I asked for a DYCP grant to develop into long-form fiction. OK, let's now talk about uh, the joint discipline of filling in the application form and actually shaping the idea ready to go into... The application form. So, Roya, um, had you, were you familiar with the Arts Council's Grantian portal? Was it your daily fare? 
No, I found it a little tricky, but I didn't find the application itself particularly arduous. They want to know what you're doing. They want to know where you've been as as an artist, and they want to know how this money will be spent on something kind of tangible that will push you into the next kind of stage of your writing. So they also want a breakdown of how you're going to use the money. So you really, like, I waited until, like, I really knew, like, what I wanted to use it on um, and exactly how it would be spent. Because if you don't have, like, a budget, then they're, you know, I think they're not going to take it as seriously. They're like, you can't just, like, wing it, you know? And when we talk about budget, we're actually just talking about a list of things you're going to spend the money on. It was, like, seven things. Seven things. And uh, one of the questions people always ask is, how do I value my time for that budget? Um, occasionally, people put in the minimum wage. That's very generous of them to do that. Do not do that. Um, if you think as an artist that you're only worth the minimum wage, and I think everyone should get more than the minimum wage, then okay. But actually, as creative people, you've spent a long time developing your practice. I would suspect, I would suggest you're worth more than the minimum wage. I won't ask anybody here what they've kind of put down for that, but Writing with Biddle says, you know, depending on the circumstances, your daily rate should be between £100 and £300, depending on what you're doing. So if you're sitting at home redrafting your novel, which might be a pleasant experience in your kitchen, in your pyjamas, drinking coffee, maybe it's the lower end of the spectrum. If you're doing some active research um, in a very difficult environment, then maybe you would put a higher level. And I would certainly advise breaking down the, when you describe how you're going to spend, um, have your time funding, breaking it down depending on what you're doing to acknowledge the fact that some things are more demanding than other things. Let's hear, George, your response to how it was to fill in the application. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, I had a bit of advice from friends who'd already applied and been successful from different regions. Um, and one of the first things was don't do it last minute because there's something like a 10-day registration period just to get logged on to Grantee with a profile, followed by some checks when you start preparing a project that they want to know it's suitable. So you need really probably a three- to four-week lead time before the deadline to make sure that you have the time then to actually fill in the form online. And for me, it was about saying, what do I want? Where am I trying to get to? Where am I? Where am I trying to get to? Is this appropriate funding for me, first of all? And the answer was yes, absolutely. And then it was just trying to translate into the various boxes on this incredibly slow-to-load, clunky web interface. We promised we wouldn't be negative about Grantium. <laughs> uh, that ultimately led to a very rewarding outcome for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, to get two things you mentioned there, George. First of all, do all your working off the Grantium portal. Do it on a Word document or on a spreadsheet. Work out everything you want to say. Count the number of characters. If you're going to have a complicated budget, you might need a spreadsheet. If it's just a list, you just need a list. Do it all on separate stuff, which you can save and you won't lose. Then, at the end of the process, copy and paste it into Grantium. Don't enter it immediately into Grantium, because Grantium has a habit. It will save if you tell it to save, but if you forget to tell it to save and move to another page, it won't remind you. It will just lose what you put in. That's a quirk of Grantium, and you you grow to know and love it. The other thing is that, essentially, you need to tell the Arts Council a story. It's a narrative arc. It's a funding narrative arc, the only one you'll come across in your lives. And the story is you've done something, and you're developing, and the Arts Council have a vital role to play in that story, is that they're giving you the money to make the happy ending happen. If you take it in that way, it becomes a writerly task rather than an arts admin task. And historically, writers and literature people have always been better at getting funding from the Arts Council in terms of uh, project applications and DYCP than other people, because... They're good with language, which is helpful. Let's take the what do you have to do afterwards. What do you have to do? Do you know what you have to do? There's a final report. Um, They withhold, is it 10%? 10%. 10% of the money uh, from your grant 
until you've submitted that report online. It's a similar online series of boxes, three or four, asking you questions about um, the initial, based on the initial submission of your application, how well did you achieve those things? Has it got you along that journey, that, that story you were trying to tell, and so on? And if there's any discrepancies in your spending or otherwise, can you account for them? What, what they want, actually, is they don't want you to give them the money back. I, I know Arts Council people, it's a pain for them to get the money back. Once they've allocated to you, they want you to tell them, no, it's fine, it was well spent. Um, let's go a bit further about whether they keep in touch with you. Uh, Roya, a daily phone call from, from Darren Henley for you, or possibly not? I have had no contact. No contact. Okay, they, once you started working with the money, that was it. Yeah. Andrea, knock on the door at midnight? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm okay. not finished yet. So. I'm not finished, but this, the Arts Council... Uh, it's, a, it's a lightly funded organisation, ironically. Most of the money they get, they give to artists and arts organisations. They don't have very many staff. Um, in the old days, they would have taken a greater interest. At the moment, they say, if you've applied and you, we trust you to be honest, we trust you to be getting on with the work, it's in your interest, we'll leave you alone until you come to the end and you want your final 10% and then tell us what you've done. And so you mustn't be concerned that you need to prove you're doing it properly. And the other thing to mention, and I, I imagine the Arts Council haven't said this to you directly, is that they also know that some arts activities don't produce the results we want. It may be that you were trying to transition from being uh, a poet to a playwright, and it just turned out it just wasn't your thing, despite the very best support you had. That's absolutely okay. The Arts Council say, fine, you spent the money legitimately and genuinely trying to develop your practice, you've hit a, de uh, a dead end, which happens to artists all the time in different forms, we're not going to ask for the money back. We're going to just say, okay, that's fine. Put that in your report. Describe what happened. That's okay. On the other side, I would mostly say that because you may want to go and get Arts Council funding in the future, it's quite nice to be able to say to them, it was well spent. Good things have come from it. I've got my novel. I'm going to be submitting it to agents. I'm very hopeful. Because, of course, they want a happy news story as well. So we won't, we won't lie to them, as it were. We'll be honest. But at the same time, you know, if we try, can give them a, new, a good news story, that's, that's better. Andrew, do you want to, uh, anybody want to add anything to relating to the Arts Council and your contact with them? Well, one of the good pieces of advice that I got was um, you need to put down how you'll know that you've achieved what yeah. you set out to achieve. So yeah. outcomes is really important. And why now as well? Yeah. Why, why are you now at the place in your career as a writer that this money would be really helpful for you? So that's about the narrative again. You've got to get, there's a tiny little cliffhanger and the Arts Council is going to save you at that point by giving you funding to develop. So it's, it's, a, it's a version of that. I think we're going to have to stop there. We're already a little bit late. Um, please join me in thanking our three speakers who have graciously told us what they did with their DOCP. Thank you. Well, it's been a beautiful day here at the National Writers' Conference organised by Writing West Midlands. As the sun streams down, and people leave the venue. It's just time for me to say thank you very much for spending your time with us. Um, the National Writers' Conference will, of course, be back next year. So make sure you check out Writing West Midlands' website for more information. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>